It is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 367, kicking off Season 9 by broadcasting from the Information Station. My name is Caleb Hegg. And it looks like Caleb's frozen. I am frozen. Why am I frozen? I'm Rob Vanoff. Welcome to Season 9. This is not good. Let's see here. How do I unfreeze myself, guys? Well... Let's it's see a here. stern look. It's a it is a stern, stern. It's a stern look. I gotta say. Okay. Well. <laughs> hmm. What do we want to do here? Hang on, just a sec. Let me see if I can do something. See if I can. See if I can fix something. See if I. It might not be possible, but you know what? We'll try. Hang on, just a second, y'all. Rob, while I try to fix this, tell me what's going on, man. Can you hear? Can you hear my echo? <laughs> Not no, it sounds good. Your mic sounds good. Hey, y'all! Welcome to episode one of season nine. Can yeah. you believe it? I know, right? And uh, Caleb's broadcasting from the information station. Oh, what a sensation! That's as right. His That's, son Ben would as my it. as my son Ben would say. <laughs> yeah, Caleb. While you're doing that, I have some fun trivia. Okay. With the number with the number nine. Go for it. The first occurrence of the number nine in the Bible. Now, you might think it's where Adam, because Adam lives 900, right? Over 900 years. But I'm just, I'm so I'm not looking at the hundreds, just the first time you just have nine, not like 900, not like 209. It's actually not until uh, Numbers 29 with the Feast of Tabernacles where there's nine bulls on the fifth day. Uh, you know how it starts and it goes down each day, it reduces a number of bulls so the fifth day of tabernacles is nine bulls and i learned today looking up this this kind of funny trivia there's only one occurrence in the apostolic writings of the number nine it's recorded in luke and it says uh, jesus answered and said were there not ten cleansed but the nine where are they so that's it but the nine where are they so (laughs) but the 36 where are they (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I want to. By- so I just learned something new. Well, two things like nine only occurs once in the apostolic writings. Really? Yeah, just by itself, nine. And that's it. We're not the 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? So the idea is, um, you know, who really loves God and, and understands gratitude and grace Um yeah, interesting stuff. So I want to welcome everybody who's in the chat room right now. We, uh, yeah, there's been some exciting changes in our life in the past week. We uh, rolled over to season nine. Excellent. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about nine seasons, the eight seasons that we've already gone through. We have, um, let's see here, what else have we done? Well, we, uh, I moved my office home and actually it's not finished yet. So there's a whole lot of echo in here and, uh, but you know, and you can tell that the walls aren't actually painted yet, at least not all the way. So that's okay though. Um, I'm happy to be able to broadcast from my house. Yeah. So, that's awesome. Yeah. It is. I'm awesome. excited. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm still seeing your, your little mug shot. So, oh, are, am I frozen for you? For me, but if it's working for everybody else, that's fine. No worries. It is working for everybody else, but that's okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine. Um, okay. 
So uh, before we get started, let's do this. Let's uh, bring up our our comment line number, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. And this is the uh, phone number that you can call and tell us how much you love us, hate us, whatever you want. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, this is how you know we're in the big leagues, right? We, uh, we, have, a, we have a comment line. <laughs> Season nine. All right. Um, or shoot us an email, chagatorresource.com, chagatorresource.com. And of course, actually, let's bring up, we have some new banners too. Um, messiahmatters.com is where you can hear all of our archive shows. Go listen to all past eight seasons. Actually, don't do that. Don't start it like, start it like show 200. That's when it starts to get good. Um, and then also <laughs> torresource.com. Torresource.com is where you can find all sorts of free stuff. And you can buy stuff there too, including commentaries and all sorts of great stuff. Um, you know, there's an interesting... So last week, I do want to talk about this a little bit. I didn't clip any of this. Um, and maybe I should have. Last week, we got in a little discussion with someone in the, um, in the, in the chat room who is in the chat room again. And uh, this person claims to be a, I think, claims to be a believer. And praise the Lord. But also claims to be a Chabad Lubavitch. And I'm not sure how in the world that would work out because the Lubavitch believe that uh, Schneerson is the Messiah. And uh, they have also declared, many of the Lubavitchers have declared him to be deity. Uh, They have made the comment, he is who he is. And uh, anyone who... Uh, knows the scriptures well, knows exactly what that means. Maybe it means he he's coming from a Lubavitcher, like in terms of community culture. Well, okay. So like, I, I don't coming out of that. Maybe I don't know. One of the things I don't want to do is slam somebody um, that I don't know personally. And uh, so that's not the, that's not the point of what I'm trying to do. Uh, the, the person last week uh, asked why I don't wear a keep anymore, and then in the comment section throughout the week said you should be wearing a keepa, and I said why in the world would I do that? And uh, they said, well, are you are you following Torah? Now that's an interesting equation that someone who would follow Torah would also uh, then think it necessary to wear a keepa or a yarmulke. I, I don't see the connection there, um, by it, at all. I, I see no connection there actually. Um. And then in the chat room today, the person says, uh, do you guys still observe the Torah of Moses? And the answer is yes. But I would argue that I think most Christians um, who are in covenant relationship with God follow the covenant of, of God himself. And so uh, now obviously there are some different interpretations of what that would mean. Right. Well, particularly commandments. Like the idea of commandments and obligatory um, right. behaviors yeah, yeah, yeah. is not really like, like I, I grew up in a rural conservative Lutheran church and at catechism, we had to memorize the 10 commandments. Mean, they were called commandments. So right. we, I come from a, an American Christian culture that had an emphasis on commandments. However, I know that there are other denominations that don't, they don't have that kind of educational um, training for their youth. And so the idea of commandments is a little more strange, like, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament kind of thing. Um, but even in, in the tradition I grew up in, kind of to your point, Caleb, there was uh, commandments that were interpreted away from 
like the literal interpretation. Don't you think that happens in every, I mean, in every single belief? Though? Sure. I, I, you're right. I think so. I think it's, it's, it's our, it's because of depravity. I think it's the human, the, but the okay, okay. The human heart. Uh, hang on now, now to... but hang on just a sec. Let, let's, let's, uh, let's be fair on both sides. There's nothing necessarily wrong with tradition and I, everybody has tradition. And we so, have to have we have to have tradition. Yeah, exactly. We have to have tradition. So, I mean, it's not necessarily wrong to hold tradition in high esteem. And I think that uh, I'm sure that Yeshua had his his tradition. And uh, just as a side note, the person in the in the that I'm speaking about in the chat room says, "Do you realize how uncomfortable this is?" And I said, "No, I don't." Um, anyway, uh, and the reason why is because I'm actually going somewhere with this, and this isn't actually to the person who's in the chat chat room right now. This there's actually somebody else who commented, and I want to actually talk about that. But um, I think that we need to be we need to be careful on both sides because I think that one of the things that we as humans naturally do is we tend to move towards the notion that our tradition is on par with Scripture, and so so I think that that's like the that's the one place that a lot of people. Uh, Oh, totally. And you know, I've read books by evangelical pastors that like, will you don't want to be Pharisaical or those Pharisees. And, right. And what it does, it tries to, it makes it those other people have that, have that problem. I don't have that problem. Right. And I don't, I don't think that's accurate. I think the Yeshua's exhortation of the Pharisees was not a complete annihilation of the Pharisees. It was, look, you have traditions that you have put on par or above Either way, on par is the same as putting them above because you've 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 reduced the fact of the revelation transmitted, you know, through the the the, the, the law, the prophets, the writings, etc., uh, to some sort of tradition. And we should be able to disassociate that problem from Pharisees. Pharisees generally, the Sadducees did it too, right? Right. Um, so I think you're right. I think we need to see that as a look in the mirror, not as a projection of somebody else's problem. And I'm clean of that problem. Yeah. So, so, but then on the other side, I think that, so we have, we have the one want essentially to say that we like our, our theology or our tradition is on par with scripture. So I think that that's one place that we go. But on the other side, I think that there are people who say, well, we're going to push it against tradition. And so because of that, um, like, uh, we don't, and, no, and that's they true. Do, they end up inventing, I mean, I'll give you a great example. I don't know if this is where you're headed, but in the, what I call the, within the larger quote, Hebrew roots movement, you have people pushing like paleo Hebrew, and then they make new names in English. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, and, yeah. and what it means is like, we have nothing to learn. Like the scribe, you know, the Masoretic tradition has nothing to teach us, you know, um, the going to a seminary and studying Hebrew formally has nothing to teach. Yeah, there's me. nothing good there. Right. I can go. I I be put on my Indiana Jones hat, and my I got my whip, and I go, and I all I need is this little diagram that tells me that a a lamed was a whip, right, or an ox head is an olive, and and that's all I need. And then I and and I'll go interpret the scriptures now and and create all these new meanings, and that's so foolish. Okay, so so I, I want to be once again. I want to be really careful. Actually, Brandon says, "Yeah, it seems like you're putting this guy on blast a little bit." Okay, Here, here's the thing: is that throughout the week, uh, the person that I'm actually speaking about has come back again and again, trying to say, "Why aren't you wearing a kippa?" And so then somebody else came in and said, on the other side, 
I think, and maybe not on the other side, but maybe just genuine question. They said, yeah, um, I wear a hat all the time. And uh, I'm wondering why you have taken off the kippa and what are the theological re reasons for that? And I pointed them back to the video that we did last week, but I want to be a little bit more specific about this. Now, it should be noted that there are very good people in my family and in my life that still wear kippas and still uh, practice what I would consider to be Messianic Judaism. And when I say Messianic Judaism, what I mean is they are attempting to follow much more of the traditions of, ra of the rabbis. So rabbinical tradition. Okay. For me personally, uh, the reason that I took my kippah off and the reason that I am uh, pushing against it I left the Messianic Synagogue and I am pushing against a lot more of those things is because I personally feel, and I know that this is going to rub some people the wrong way, I personally feel like modern Judaism starting, well, I mean, starting all the way back before Yeshua was on earth, right? So the, the, we see Jewish magic even within the, within the uh, apostolic scriptures, right? Within the New Testament, we see Simon the Magician and others who are classified as Jewish, but have, are also classified as like ma magicians, right? And then we see in the fourth, fifth century, we see, you know, third, fourth Enoch, right? And then in the 12th century, we have the, the uh, beginning of like Kabbalah, like formal Kabbalah. And then into the 17th century, like 12th century, like 1200s is like Lurianic Kabbalah comes to the scene. And then 17th, 18th, 19th century, we really see like this Hasidic theology, come onto the scene. And this is when we have the theology of the Zadik that is, is brought into uh, the, you know, the, the mix. We have, um, you know, this idea of study is not the, uh, how you come close to God, but rather experience is how you come close to God. Now, this is not to put down the Jews and the rabbinic tradition in and of itself. What's happening in the Christian tradition at the exact same time is the rise of the Quakers. And this is where you get the, uh, the Pentecostal movement and you know this kind of experiential Christianity. So both these things are happening, happening at the same time. So I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other or anything like that. All I'm saying is that we have a, a history of this going on. Now, I see the Kabbalistic tradition in line with what the prophets spoke against. And what I mean by that is, I don't see the rabbinic tradition of Kabbalah as something good. I see it as a following after the Baals for the most part. I mean, that's like the blunt end of the stick right there, is I see that as the, I see the Kabbalah as a continuation of Israel in exile because they're following after false gods and because they have rejected the Messiah. And so, as we see the progression of, of, of rabbinic Judaism, we see these traditions that form out of it. One of the things that the Torah movement today has done, the believing Torah movement has done, I think, is they've taken a lot of traditions and they've said, this goes back to Yeshua. And I'm not trying to say that, um, I mean, obviously this ha my view on this has theological implications for the people in my life. But at the same time, I understand where those people are. So I'm not trying to just like blow people out of the water, but this is why I personally have moved away from these things is because I see, I don't see these going back to Yeshua. I see a lot of these traditions, not all of them, but a lot of these traditions 
stemming from a, a Kabbalistic belief that's invented by man much later. And because of that, I don't, I want to, I want to pull away from that. I don't want to be associated with unbelieving Israel. Uh, I want to be associated with the remnant who is a believing people who believe in the Messiah and have rejected things like the Baals and like the Kabbalistic tradition. And so for me personally, um, that's why I have taken off the yarmulke. That's why I have left the, the Messianic synagogue. That's why I have, I've pulled away from a lot of these things. Now that's not to say that I'm trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. My family celebrated Hanukkah. Um, you know, we lit candles each night. We played dreidel. So there are certain things that are traditions that we still hold to. The question that I really have to ask myself when, when looking at these things is more, where does it come from? And I'm not a person who sees Satan behind every corner or sees paganism behind every corner. Uh, I'm just not. In fact, uh, I've had really good discussions with a lot of people recently about Christmas and my view of Christmas. And I think that I think that it's been surprising for some people that I haven't really taken the Saturnalia, you know, it's, it stems from Saturnalia. Uh, I haven't really taken that, that view. And so I take a different view of that. I'm thinking about writing it, uh, writing up on this, but, um, only to say that I'm not one to try to find Kabbalah or uh, paganism in, in everything, but I do think that Kabbalah really diverts from the Torah, from what God has given us in covenants. Do you have anything to say to that, Rob? I know that that was I'm why I'm not wearing. I know that that's why I'm not wearing a keep anymore, and that's why I don't want to associate with that stuff. And I love Jeff Young in the chat room says, "Yeah, that's what a Baptist would say." Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what a great line. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, just to clarify, I mean, you know, I'm a geek on history, so the the. Luria, Luria wasn't until the mid 16th century. So, okay. But, but you're right that the, like the Zohar, for example. Right. And know, that's, from, yeah, I switched them up from the 13th century Spain. And then you, but you do have this uh, increase in um, exploration of all the different meanings that are in the scripture. Right. And, and that meaning, meaning is open ended. That that the letters of the Torah themselves are open to you know whether it's seventy or infinite number of of meanings and so the labor of of the true pious Jew is to um, explore all the the multi uh, meanings that are in the text and that's a very different approach than Yeshua. Right. Uh, teaching the Torah. Um, I mean, he told how many times he said, go and learn what this means. Right. You know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I desire mercy and not, not sacrifice. Um, he tells the Sadducees, you err, not knowing the scriptures, you know, go read the account of the burning bush where he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you know? And so, and the apostles, at the, in the same time, they, when they're taking the message out, they're explaining scripture. They're saying it, this points to Yeshua who has come and he was crucified and he rose again and he has ascended and he is the King of Israel. He is the true King of Kings. And so it, the gospel message is a message of, 
uh, certainty of of what the prophets prophesied about about the king, the coming king, and uh, and that the Torah itself, Yeshua says, the Torah or Moses, Moses wrote about me, right? And right. so, so that's a that's not at all the message you get if you read the works of the Kabbalists. And nothing, nothing points to Yeshua. As a matter of fact, they'll say everything points away because they're trying to, they're, they're going to find the claims to Yeshua's uh, Messiahship at every point, at every turn. Right. So, so the question, do you want to, do you want to spend your devotional life studying scripture under an umbrella that is, that is informed solely by this uh, anti-gospel uh, Kabbalistic tradition? Um, and if so, how can you survive? How could, how could a believer in Yeshua survive in that environment? And the answer is you can't. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have friends or acquaintances and, and even have some competency in that material to talk with them, but you don't get, that's not where you get your nourishment. So, and, and there's, there, yeah, there is a very specific, here's the other thing is, is one of the reasons that I don't want to come down too harsh on people who are actually, I mean, I think that in some ways we do need to, to have some, maybe a little bit of boxing gloves on when we're talking about this. But, and one of the reasons why is because uh, Torah resource, even though there has been a, uh, a following of rabbinic tradition in some areas, uh, Torah resources always pushed against the notion of pardes and gematria and uh, oral Torah and all these kind of things. So we're not far off from, you know, what I'm saying is not a, a giant revelation. But the thing is, is that when I was, I mean, and many, many, many people, many of our listeners know uh, my my uh, my story, my how I came to faith. But when I was eighteen, I went to Israel, and I I mean I was very much in that camp. I just thought that uh, you know Hasidic Judaism meant really 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 pious. You know, trying to be ultra pious. You know, you wear black and white. You you deprive yourself of earthly things, and almost like a monastic Judaism. But that's not what it is. And and one of the things that I really learned when I was in Israel was, which was very eye opening, and and I think really rocked my uh, my my understanding of God and faith when I was young, was that there is a s- severe or a very large theological implication that comes along with the Hasidic movement. It's not simply just being pious or being really really you know really trying to be as righteous as possible. That's not what it is. There is a theological working that comes along with it. You know, when I, when I realized when I went to the, uh, when I went to the tomb of David with a uh, breast lover and he told me, well, now we'll say a prayer and ask David to protect us. I thought, well, why in the world would we ever do that? And as we were talking about that, he talked about reincarnation. And I just thought, this is, this is so far off from anything that I thought I was getting into. And so there was kind of this realization. So I'm not, I don't want to just say like these people who are following after Hasidic Judaism and trying to believe in Yeshua at the same time. I, I don't want to just di- discount these people because I feel like I was in that place myself one time. And so I, I'm not trying to be mean or rude. I'm just trying to explain why it is that, I, you know, the path that I've come down in the past 23 years is a path of realizing this is not where I want to be in any way, shape or form. Um, so yeah, yeah. That's a, those are things that are not necessarily the upfront advertised points. 
Right. Uh, you know, reincarnation. It's kind example. of, it's almost like Scientology, right? They don't tell you exactly what they believe until you're in it for a little while. <laughs> like, I, well, I here, think... here's another, here's another problem. The main, the main texts of the Kabbalah are in Aramaic and, and then Hebrew secondarily. So the Zohar, the Tikkunay Zohar, all these, all these texts are in Aramaic. So, and, and they're written in, and it's difficult. It's they're difficult texts. People in America, the people, the, uh, the vast number of people I know who have who've studied that kind of stuff do it through translation. So they're right. they're like the consumers of the art scroll. Anything same art, here. I mean, that's how I that's art, how I studied that stuff. Anything art scroll produces, like oh, they'll buy it, you know. And because art scroll then is one of the main mediators of of Hasidic learning to the English, uh, English language and heavily commented how many footnotes, you know, and, but all that, all the content in the art scroll products is highly governed because they're steering, they know who their audience is, right? They've tapped their market. There's an intended audience too. It's not just anybody. Yeah. And and they're shaping thoughts. So even they don't give you the whole tradition. They give you a, a, what I call the mediated tradition, a select, they, they've cherry picked, they've selected what they're going to present. And, and then people uh, who are just coming to it, they come to the religious marketplace with a general curiosity for a quote, Judaism, you know, and they'll buy a nice looking art scroll book. Wow. This is a beautiful book. Look at it. Look at it. It's just beautiful to look at. I mean, it's got the embossed gold and, you know, yeah, they, they, they open it up. They're doing like, good wow. work there. <laughs> exactly. About that. And it's, and it's, and it, what does it create for the reader, for the naive reader? It creates this experience of beauty, of, of knowledge, a, a seemingly like sea of knowledge I and think, learning. But I think and that's that. And so what people are drawn into that believing, oh, this is Judaism. I think I think that you I think you're absolutely right, but I also think that there's another element that that is missed a lot of the time. You know, when people, I think a lot of the time for modern, like let's just use really really broad brushstrokes, okay? Uh, within within Christianity, and when I say Christianity, I'm talking like a mainstream, and you could, I mean, you could even say, uh, well, just the mainstream broad brushstroke church today. Um, you know, you have. There's almost an identity crisis, right? And what is the what is the basis for a lot of not all by any stretch of the imagination, but for a lot of the churches today, it's the Sunday service. And the Sunday service, you come in, and there is some really you know rocking um, contemporary Christian music that is the worship music, which. I was reading this study of contemporary Christian music and why it doesn't last. In other words, why the hymns have lasted for so long and are still loved, but modern Christian uh, worship music, it's on the charts one day and then a week later it's not. Well, there's a reason Look, for that. There's a business there too. There is a business there too, but it's just, a lot of it is not. Anyway, point is you come in, you sit down, you have you know, you, you sing a couple of songs and then uh, usually kids are dismissed. You might have, uh, you know, you usually have a, a teaching time for 45 minutes or something like that. Uh, you might share communion and that's about it. And what I see in that, now I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but what I see in that is a total lack of identity. 
I mean, we find identity in Christ for sure, right? But one of the things that the church has done is, once again, very broad brush strokes, brush strokes here. But one of the things that the church has done is they have reduced the culture of Christ and the Bible down into a hour to an hour and a half long uh, experience, quote unquote, experience on Sunday. And to me, what that has done is it has made believers lose a sense of identity. Uh, Especially and, if that experience parallels the movie experience, like going to a movie or right, going to a concert, right? Because right? I can go to a movie, I can go to a concert, and if there's some sort of experience kind of, uh, I don't know, sense that I've received something meaningful, you know, right. and then I go to a church and I have the same kind of thing, it's like, wait a minute. Am I going to be well, entertained? So do that's a, you, you bring up a really good point. What, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in uh, people my age and younger, what is happening is they're, they're finding really great teachers on YouTube. So you'll find, you know, uh, within the Christian realm, you got R.C. Sproul and you got who's passed, but you got R.C. Sproul, you got Piper, you got MacArthur, you got, you know, you got all these guys. And then well, what really do you need with the church? I can sit in my living room. I don't have to get up and get dressed and go to church and all that kind of stuff. And so, so really, it even waters it down even more. And what I feel is that when people come into the Torah movement, whatever brand of that you want to be a part of, uh, when people come into the Torah movement, what they're really looking for a lot of the time is, yes, they are looking for truth. And so I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say that people aren't genuinely seeking after the truth and genuinely trying to follow God because I, I, I feel like... a majority, a huge majority of the people come into the Torah movement, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And they feel like they've been somewhat lied to by the church. And because of that, there's this animosity towards the church. And so they want to, they want to disassociate themselves from that culture. And now they want, now they are looking for a new culture. And guess what? Judaism as a whole, non-believing Judaism has this unbelievably rich historical culture that comes along with it. And it's not just a Sunday service. We're talking about a lifestyle every single day. This is you wake up. This is how you. Um, this is how you pray. You in the afternoon. This is how you pray. This is how you conduct your weekend. I mean, everything is laid out. And people like the black and the white, especially people who are searching for identity. I know that I really like the black and the white. Don't tell me that it's a gray area. Tell me what I have to do. If you just give me a list of what I have to do, not a problem, right? I mean, I think that that's how I am. And I know that a lot of people are like that as well. And, and Judaism really does that. It lays out, this is what you do. This is, this is your list. Here's your checklist. Now go and do it and you're good. And so I think that that's really one of the things that, that really attracts people towards Kabbalah and to Judaism today without knowing the full story. Now, with that said, I think that we need to also backtrack just a little bit and say that there is a rich history of Christian tradition within various uh, various churches and various denominations uh, throughout the world. So I don't want to discount the fact that um, the modern American, um, I don't, watered down church that a lot of people are experiencing is not necessarily what everyone is uh, experiencing. There are churches that have a very rich tradition. That's uh, that's what I, that's what I would say. Anyway, um, all of that to say, I don't want to, you know, I, I wanted to address that question because I think it's a good question. I think it's one that, uh, needs to be addressed. Okay. With all of that said, let's. Well, it, well, one last point, please. 
the Torah does give us uh, tzitzit as a garment, a commandment related to garment. And, and that, you know, men shouldn't wear women's clothes and that sort of thing, right? Right. But in terms of a, a commanded garment. Uh, now, of course, the high priest has, has specific garments to wear, but, um, but in terms of the Torah, in the written Torah, the tzitzit are a commandment. And we know that Yeshua wore tzitzit. Right. Um, so anyway, just a thought. Yeah, but even that comes down to, you know, actually that's, <clears throat> that's a really good, that's a really good and interesting point <clears throat> that is made by a lot of people. Actually, when I've debated uh, non-believing Jews, just in passing in, you know, um, especially at like SBL, one of the things that they'll say is, well, you do keep rabbinic tradition. And I mean, yeah, the answer is certainly there are cer some rabbinic traditions that we definitely follow. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I light candles on, on, uh, Arab Shabbat. I, my family's always done that. And that's something that my kids really enjoy doing. <clears throat> I don't have a problem with that. Um, but one of the things that, uh, the non-believing Jews that I've spoken with at SBL have, have brought up is the way that I tie my tzitzit. So, and it always got like, this has happened three or four times now. Oh, well you're following rabbinic tradition. How do you know how to tie your tzitzit? And, and so, you know, and I'll say, well, what exactly is it that you're, you're implying They'll say, well, okay, you wrap them, you know, uh, what, 15, 10, 11 or whatever, you know? And it's like, okay, yeah, I, I, I do. Well, that's a rabbinic tradition. And so why are you following that rabbinic tradition, but you're not following other rabbinic tradition, which is one of the reasons that I stopped tying my tzitzit. <laughs> that's literally one of the reasons I stopped tying my tzitzit. I just wear tassels now. I don't tie them at all. And it's not because I'm trying to push so hard against Judaism. It's because if the, if the uh, you know, I think that Judaism is going to be jealous no matter what, because the scriptures say that the Jews are going to be jealous. Um, but I, I want them to be jealous of me keeping the commandments of God and believing in Yeshua and not jealous of the rabbinic traditions, because I don't think that Christ cares about the rabbinic traditions. So, all right. Um, let's actually get into the, uh, <laughs> we just spent 26 minutes, no, 36 minutes, uh, talking about that, but it's a good conversation. And, and I think it is something that we need to continue to come back to. And, um, and I, yeah, so I don't, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, there's one comment that has come up that I really, really want to talk about. And so we're going to do it today. Garrett, I teased this last week, by the way, Garrett wrote in, and this was on a video where we were talking about communion versus Passover and how I personally believe that, uh, communion has been taken, uh, has been misunderstood. I think that the communion that is actually, um, commanded by Yeshua in the gospel of Luke, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, I think he's talking about a Passover meal. And so when Christians have asked me, do you celebrate the Lord's supper? I say, yes, I do. I, we, my congregation does it once a year and that's true. We do it in a meal form and it's called the Passover. Anyway, Garrett writes in, he says, when the breaking of bread and pouring of the wine be referring to the Arab Shabbat, since Passover is a high Sabbath. Okay, there is a lot going on in this question. I don't think, I mean, it's a great question, but I don't think he realizes how many different things he hit in one 
question. And that's why I really want to talk about it. So chronology, right. tradition, right. right? All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the very first thing that we need to say is what uh, we don't know for sure whether or not the, uh, the tradition of setting aside Arab Shabbat um, with bread and wine was necessarily in place in the first century. Um, now, with that said, Dapnons, that is banquet meals in the first century, for both Jew and Gentile, both in the Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture, all were uh, started with bread and wine. So every meal was like that. Uh, if it was a banquet meal, every meal started with bread and wine. And, and we know from like the marriage, uh, or the wedding at Cana, that there was wine at, at a celebratory event, like a wedding. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but the point is, is that the bread represented all of the meal. And this is actually still true. Actually, let's go to, I mean, modern day well, Judaism. In term, yeah, in terms of the halakha, you say hamotzi lechem, right. haaretz, that covers all the food. Right. Whereas if you were to just to say, you know, something, uh, what is the, minha uh, adama, like who, like vegetables or something. That does not cover the meat, right? Like if you, right? So, so, but if you say lechem, right? Hamotzi lechem, that covers all it halakhically. So that for, and so that's an early rabbinic view of bread or lechem being symbolic of the meal generally. Right. And but it actually, doesn't cover the wine, right? Lechem does not cover the, the wine. So the so the the interesting thing is is that when within the Dapnon meals of the Greek culture and the Roman culture within the first century, what they they had different they had different um, parts of the meals, and we see this even in the Gospels. I've written on this, but they, but they start right in Luke. It says that they they broke bread and they and he blesses it and they have a cup of, of wine and he blesses it. He gives it to his disciples, right? And then it says, and after the likewise, after the meal, he took a cup. Okay, so we see this separation. We see these two different separations. Now, what I believe he is doing is he is he's using bookends. Bread and wine at the very beginning, representing the meal and that is going to come. And then wine at the end of the meal, which shows that this portion of the meal is over. And in John, he launches into his, his commentary or his speech after the meal. So this actually follows the, the Roman date nine perfectly. And when he says, do this in remembrance of me, I believe that what he's actually doing is he's bookending it and saying this meal that we just had, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, so with all of that said, the question is, uh, and he comes back to, he mentions the Passover is a high Sabbath. Okay, so this is a really interesting, uh, a really interesting phrase that's used. It's only used in, in John, I believe. It's used twice, one time during Sukkot and then one time during Passover. Um, some people try to argue that the reason it's called a high Sabbath is because Nissan 15 fell on a Saturday. That's that's what the uh, that's what the the, uh, the hypothesis is by many. I don't take that view. I take the view that Nissan 16 falls on Saturday, and this is why it's called a high Sabbath is because it's the first Omer, and therefore you have more sacrifices. And so the, the reason it's called a mega 
which is like a, a large or really big Sabbath, is because of the amount of sacrifices. Not because it made it more Sabbath, because there was two Sabbaths on one day. That doesn't make something more of a Sabbath. What makes it a mega Sabbath is the amount of offerings that go on in the temple. That's I take that view, and, and uh, there are some, some very good scholars who have taken that view as well, including my father. I didn't come up with that view, by the way. Rob? Yeah, I think your dad does the best treatment. I think it's in more than one place, but I think it's in the, his gospel, his commentary on the gospel of Matthew. There is an excursus, I think, on chronology of the Passion Week. And uh, right, I think he, he touches on all this. And I don't, I, I know we did our interview with um, Brant Petrie, but mm-hmm. I don't, I think we probably touched on that we did. point as well. Um, and so people could always go back and watch that video where we dive into it. Right. Exactly. So it's, 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 it, it shows that at a cursory reading, like I, you know, like we point out in those, in that video, you know, John is read separate from the synoptics as being a retelling where Yeshua dies on, on actual Passover when the Passover lambs. And, and so scholars say, oh, this was a literary a rhetorical device to make Yeshua look like, you know, the Passover lamb. And, and that got a lot of track. People go, oh, I, you know, and then you, your dad did a lot of work on that. And then 10 years later, Brant Petrie publishes a book on it, <laughs> um, coming to the same exact conclusion, but not totally separate. Not, yeah, yeah, separate independently. Yeah. That in fact, all the four gospels have the same chronology and we just need to learn to, to not make a, sum up. we got to watch what we, what presuppositions we make about like the word Pascha, for example. Right. Okay. So, um, let's see here. We got a, I don't know if it's Ellie or Eli. I think it's Eli. Uh, Eli gave us a super chat. And so we're going to, I think we haven't played, you know, it's, it's, uh, the first episode of season nine. Let's play a, uh, a song because that sounds like fun. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb? Honestly, I think they're vain stupid and incredibly self-centered all right uh thank you very much for the super chat can you not hear that rob no that's okay i'm sorry man okay um hopefully our our, hopefully everyone else could hear it anyway okay um let's see here let's move on i want to move to rob's rob's uh topic for the day uh, he says, why? Rob says, why does Messiah Matters continue? Why should we have a season nine? All right. You want to go first or you want me to? Yeah, I just, uh, that could be heard in different ways. So I just wanted to clarify that I'm excited about season nine. Right. I'm trusting that, you know, that uh, with God's help, you know, we'll continue. Um, but the question of why was a way of like, can we distill down the value we bring to the, I, I might, and I could be wrong here, but my, my assumption is I think we're around 7,000 subscribers. 
I don't know how many people watch or listen in on a week by week basis. I don't have, I don't look at those numbers, Caleb, maybe you do, but so uh, I don't know what person, I would guess the most of the people who tune in and listen are believers, are Christian. Um, there might be a few people who are maybe uh, Jewish or of a um, even anti-missionary agenda that, because I, I know that that has happened right. from time to time because we've had interactions. So uh, it's it's not entirely clear uh, what our complete uh, reach is, but I know, that, so, but the other feedback, because I don't read all the, the YouTube comments, but we get the voicemails and we respond to the emails. And so typically, you know, the, the messages we get from people reflect engaged listeners, right? They're engaged. And so when I, when I say this question, why, why I'm trying to drill down on what is the value that we bring? Can it be boiled down or, or is it okay just being a general a uh, fluid conversational based kind of talk show, you know, where we're just responding to uh, comments and trying to advance a conversation forward from a one Torah hermeneutic perspective. And then in that, in that advancing the conversation, inevitably we have uh, a, an, what we think is an old topic kind of come around again with right. new legs. And then, so we kind of address it again and, and kind of, shepherd the conversation along. And so it's unclear to me. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. You know, what are we just, are we shepherding a general conversation with, with the constrained by the one Torah hermeneutic or are we, or is there a different way that's more accurate to like, like to the value we bring? So that's a really good question. Ultimately, I think that, uh, I think that, well, it's interesting because I think over the past eight years, I think that uh, my view on this has changed a little bit. Uh, you know, this show initially started, we thought we were going to do maybe 25 episodes in total. Uh, and we did that. Basically, we were responding. Um, and this was kind of an effort to create some videos that, or actually initially audio, create some audio that... that um, uh, people could, when people ask questions about, do you know about this teacher? Do you know about this teaching or this theology? What do you say about it? And right. So that, so the, there was a necessity. Uh, we, we felt compelled to talk about certain things. Right. And so we, we did those, we did those episodes and we, we kind of hashed out some of the things that we thought were the big, you know, the big ticket issues um, but then, then we kept going and we continued, we started to get emails and, and people asking questions. And for a little while, actually right around show about 185 or so, uh, Rob said to me, I don't want to be the, uh, the Bible answer man. In other words, is that all we're doing? We're just sitting here answering people's emails. And to a big extent, yeah, that is what we're doing. We are attempting to, I think, uh, broaden the conversation on some very specific issues. Now, over the time, for me personally, this has changed. Uh, going from the idea of responding to issues that we see within the, the believing community um, to more attempting to help people understand uh, ultimately the gospel, but I want to break that down a little bit. What I mean by the gospel is understanding 
yes, the fall and how we come back into covenant relationship, but ultimately covenant relationship in and of itself. In other words, that God is a covenant making and keeping God and that the covenant is in fact what the, what runs through all scripture. And so it is the covenant, the covenants, I should say, that really are the focus of, of our faith and how we uh, and how we abide by those and keep those. Now, this is not, this is not, I don't want people to hear me saying that this is, that we're simply here to talk about uh, keeping the commands of Torah because that's not what, not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the gospel in general. That is personal relationship with Christ. And along with that comes, you know, I think that for me, the idea of Torah observance, I think that we started this show with the idea that we're going to respond to those who are anti-Torah observance. And over the years, that has changed for me to how do we talk about a relationship with Christ? And the relationship with Christ comes with covenant obligations. And so so all of that is wrapped up. And you know, like last week, we talked about eschatology and uh, the millennium, things like that. We're getting a lot of the same questions that we've we've answered many, many, many times. And that says multiple things to me. That says, number one, that we're getting new listeners. And so these conversations are important for the people who haven't heard them. It means that there are a couple of areas where people are, are m- the most confused when it comes to our theology or whatever you want to call it. One Torah theology, pronomian theology, whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And how that fits into the gospel message and how that fits into the inner workings of Paul and the apostolic scriptures and so on and so forth. Now, at the same time, when we went to New Jersey, what was that, a year ago, a year and a half ago, we met somebody there and uh, he was in a fundamentalist Baptist congregation. And they're the people who are really kind of, um, I don't, you know, I don't know what to say. They, there's just some very uh, abrasive and interesting uh, uh, theological positions uh, within that, within that branch of, of Baptist and uh, he had told me that uh, he stumbled upon our show on YouTube and he started listening and wanted to refute some of what we were talking about. And he ended up coming to Torah. And to me, that made every single thing that we had ever done. Now, when I say coming to Torah, I, I don't see that as like, oh, he just started. No, it's just cleaning off the lenses. It's, it's not... It... Right. But, but even then it's not, that's not even the, to me, that wasn't even the bit like him coming to an understanding that he should celebrate the Sabbath and, or keep a kosher diet or whatever. Yeah. Those are great things, I think. But ultimately what that, the underlying uh, message of what that was to me was that through this show, he came closer to Christ. In other words, through this show, he began to understand covenant in a different way. And to me, that was like, yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And so every time we kind of have this conversation, we have this conversation at least once, if not two or three times a year, should we keep going? Do, you know, do, have we exhausted what, what the Lord wants us to talk about and what the Lord wants us to do? Are, are we really putting out content that is, is glorifying to Christ and, and is, is really furthering the kingdom of God? And well, I like to, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, that, and ultimately I think that my theology has, uh, has matured over the years. And I think that, uh, with that has come, uh, more of an understanding of why we're doing this. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and I think at the very least, you know, starting season nine, we've shown a few things. We've shown a, a, a strong sense of dependability, of consistency, just, you know, and and that we reflect, I mean, you and I are brothers in the Lord. We were walking with the Lord. We have families, et cetera. And we happen to live in the same state, but that's obviously not necessary because right. we are probably what, 300 or more miles apart. So we're not in the same local community at all. Right. Now we, what we share uh, doctrinally though is, is, you know, we, well, we share employment with, with Tor Resource and Tor Resource Institute, which if anybody wants to see what the doctrinal statement is there, we have that published, you know, and so, um, coming into, you know, our ninth season is like pretty amazing. I mean, cause like the, if the Lord tarries, you know, and, and we continue, that'll be season 10, you know, next a year from now, Crazy. which is, which is like amazing, you know? And, and, um, so that, that long-term, you know, uh, consistency, people can, can tune in and they're going to hear two guys who have a pretty good idea of what they're talking about. Do we have all understanding? No. Do we have all wisdom? No. But we are confident in our walks with the Lord and how we handle the scriptures, right? We have a, we have a basic confidence. I, we're not overconfident, I don't think, and we're not underconfident. I think we have a healthy um, confidence. And I think that's a good thing. Because we, I think as it, any, anyone, any disciple of the Lord, you know, as you walk with him, he, you know, if, if, if it's true, what he says is he's going to discipline us like, you know, as we're his children, that means he's going to equip us. And we're going to be able to, as we go in life, there might be times where we get our, our spanking, right. Or our, you know, our timeouts and our, our things that the Lord does to discipline us, to humble us when, when we're headed in the wrong direction or whether we have an attitude problem, you right. know, things that need to be corrected. And we all have those, but overall we should be able to look back on our walk with the Lord and say, wow, I'm increasing in confidence. I'm increasing in, in understanding of what, what is God's grace? What does it mean to have Shalom with God? What is it? What, why are the fruits of the spirit so crucial in the life of a believer? What is the place of God's uh, covenant obligations in in a person who's uh, understanding grace and forgiveness and new life, um, and and is afraid of traditions of man? You know, I don't want to be in a cult again, kind of thing. I think we have good uh, good discussions around these all these various topics, and the fact that we've had this consistency and dependability over eight full seasons now, eight years. With, you know, there's occasional, you know, a couple weeks a year, maybe we don't have a show, but for the most part, we've been pretty, pretty solid. And um, I think there's something to be said just for that simple dependability, for that consistency. Um, and, and the fact that it's you and I continuing our conversation, um, that, you know, it's hard to imagine what, what is it like for a person who to just encounter us, you know, in this episode, first episode of season nine, and they they come in and they're like, "Who's this guy? You know, who, who's this guy? Who's this other guy? You know, why do I even care? 
what right. they talk, what they're talking about, you know? And I believe that that we have demonstrated by our care of hearing what people have to say, whether it's voicemail or email or comment, et cetera, um, and our love for Yeshua and the word of God, the centrality of the word of God in our life, and that we put tradition of men in its in a separate file folder down and way lower, right, on the hierarchy, that people will ultimately, if they give us a chance, even if they ultimately say, you know, I disagree, I think that they're going to say, wow, well, they're, they're consistent. They've been doing this they, for a long time and that they care about that. I can tell that they care about the word of God, that it, that it's prime, that it's uh, primary in their life. And I think people, even if they disagree with one Torah or pronomian theology, however we want to call that, it's it's hard for me to imagine a first-time viewer who loves the Lord to not pick that up. To to go, yeah, those guys are crazy. Or, you know. So so to me, whether or not the person thinks that we're crazy or not, that that is kind of beyond the point. To me, the the question is: Are we sparking conversation or sparking a a way for uh, for people to um to dive into the scriptures more? And to to uh, challenge people on what oh, they, challenge. what, okay, challenge, challenge like people that. on what, like they, what they believe. Um, so, like we did with with Ryan, I think you were talking about Ryan um, from the conference, right? Um, that we and I've I've talked to other people that have had that kind of a thing where it's initially it's a it's like wait a minute I can easily show where these guys are wrong, right? They flip through the Bible and then all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute. Right. So uh, I want to, so we're pretty much at the end of our time, but I, uh, I, I do want to, this is a, this is probably going to take way too long. Brandon asks, did you watch the JW that's James White and the William Lane Craig debate? I did watch that debate for those who don't know what that debate is. uh, James White who is probably one of the uh, foremost um, debaters in the world today in terms of just the amount that he debates and um, his tactic in debate, uh, debated William Lane Craig, who is probably one of the, um, (laughs) also one of the uh, greatest debaters of our time. And so this was on a YouTube channel called Unbelievable. You can go watch it. Um, It was hyped very much uh, so, and the debate was over. Calvinism, that is predestination, versus Molinism. And uh, to be honest, now I'm a Calvinist. And to be honest with you, I felt like James White dropped the ball. And the reason why is because I don't think that James White sufficiently explained how uh, an almighty, infinitely holy God can create but not be the author of sin. And I think that he really didn't explain that well. And I think that there was a couple of things he could have said that would have probably uh, helped his case. But William Lane Craig, I thought, came across uh, looking a little bit more theologically sound, even though I disagreed with him. (laughs) 
Uh, I, I don't agree with, with William Lane Craig. In fact, I think that uh, his views and the way that he described Molinism actually helped me to solidify the fact that I don't believe in Molinism. Um, because not because of anything that James White said, but actually because of the way that William Lane Craig described his view. Um, and that's interesting. In fact, I think that if anything, if I was not a Calvinist and didn't understand the doctrine of evil, uh, compared to the doctrine of the infinitely holy God, I think I would have walked away saying there's no way that, that anybody can believe that because I think that white just really, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that White really likes to attack people uh, on small things that don't really matter in the conversation. He does that, I think, to diminish the person's um, thrust in their argument. But I think it really worked against him in this. Did you see that debate, uh, Rob? Oh, I'm sorry. No. I'm just talking. Now I'm just talking to myself, I guess. No, that's all right. All right. Um, well, it's been an interesting and a good uh, beginning to our ninth season. We hope to have a uh, blessed and great season. And uh, we hope that you join us uh, along with this season through the whole thing. Uh, if you have any questions, please give us a call. 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chag at torahresource.com. chag at torahresource.com. All right. Thank you so much to everybody in the chat room. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Mm -hmm.